grandmother uh, is her voice. It's something that I even continue to hear uh, now after several months. She died this summer, and it's almost on a daily basis. I still hear her, her voice in my head saying things. Uh, I, she was sort of one of the staples in my life growing up. She was at all of my ball games. Actually, if you go back and watch some of the, the, the games, football games that I played, we have those on uh, video cassette, and we go back and we watch those with my kids, and you hear my grandmother yelling at me, not at the refs or the umpires like I do, but she's yelling at me. Uh, she, she's getting on to me, and you can hear her over everyone else in the crowd. Her, her voice is such a, a staple in my life. And uh, until she died this summer, she would call me once a week. Uh, usually on a Friday, she would call me. And uh, even now, I get to the end of the week, and I, I think, oh, I haven't heard from, I call her Granny, I haven't heard from her. And I'll pick up the phone to call her and remember uh, that, that she died this summer. And it's sort of this uh, empty feeling there, not hearing her voice on a weekly basis. Now, I want to be honest about her voice. It wasn't soothing at all. It's not soothing at all. It was this really high-pitched southern accent, almost a, a whiny sound when she would yell out or when she would greet someone or even on the phone. It wasn't this, this calm, soothing, grandmother, grandmotherly voice that you may be thinking about. And it is her voice and the sound of her voice that I hear most hymns of the faith. Because I grew up uh, in church, in a small Southern Baptist church, seated next to her Sunday morning, Sunday night, and hearing her sing Amazing Grace, hearing her sing week after week in church. And it wasn't this beautiful, soothing sound. She actually sang in the choir sometime. And I would think, why do they let her do that? She's ruining the whole thing. But, but I, I still hear the gospel through the sound of her voice, just remembering, even her singing, Jesus loves me to me as a small child, I can remember it. And again, uh, it wasn't the most joyful sound. But it, it's the sound of her voice where uh, it sort of shaped me by the gospel. I still hear the joy of the Lord even in her voice as I think about songs that we used to sing, as I think about the gospel. And we come to our text and we find Mary in our text and she's singing a song because singing is a natural response to the gospel no matter what it sounds like. The Bible commands us to sing because singing represents celebration. Singing represents victory. Singing represents joy in the gospel. It's this emotional response that is to well up within us no matter what it sounds like. And we find with Mary here, she is in a situation where you would not find a lot of joy. And yet we find her in worship. We find her singing. We find her declaring the joy of the Lord in song. And this song that she sings to us is packed with gospel. Her song is packed with the good news of the kingdom. 
Remember last week, we, we find this peasant girl who is in this town of Nazareth, this, this podunk, hick town, Nazareth. And, and she is there, really insignificant nobody. And this angelic being, Gabriel, comes. The angel who is in the presence of the Lord comes and he speaks to this 13-year-old girl and tells her she is going to conceive the Savior of the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it radically changes her life. She was probably distraught. She was probably scared to death. She, she was probably just racked with fear. What do I do? How do I move from this moment? And yet we saw at the end of our passage last week that she declares, let it be to me according to your word. Whatever it is, if you are fulfilling your promise in me, your word is true. Your word is my only hope. And she's going to trust the Lord no matter what. And one of the signs God was giving Mary was that her cousin Elizabeth who was barren she would be found pregnant and so Mary gets up and she immediately the text says with haste rushes to Elizabeth's home and in verse 31 when she enters the home notice when she enters the home Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary and notice what happens the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Now, now imagine this, Mary, scared to death. How do I figure this out? How am I going to sort this out? And she rushes to see this sign that the angel said would be there. And immediately she walks into the home and Elizabeth greets her and says, You are blessed. And imagine the relief that would have come over Mary. This is true. This is real. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of the Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in the womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what the Lord had spoken of her at the greeting, just at the sound of Mary's voice. Hey girl, I hadn't seen you in a while. And then all of the sudden in her womb, there is this movement. It's not a reflex. It's not a kick. There is an emotional, an emotional response to the presence of the Savior. The Savior in the womb of Mary brings about joy in the womb of Elizabeth. And you have to admit this is weird. This is strange that we find this story in Scripture. Two pregnant women greeting one another, talking about what's going on in their womb. How do we sort this out? Well, Luke is at pains to declare to us that in the coming of Jesus, the presence of the kingdom has come. And the king always has a prophet. And the prophet that will go before Jesus is John the Baptist. And so we have the prophet in the womb of his mother already preparing the way for Jesus. Already declaring to us, Jesus is here. And even from the womb of Elizabeth out her mouth, 
to Mary, she is declaring this promise is true. The kingdom is here in your womb. And you are blessed because of the kingdom. And we see in this interesting section of the story, we see how the Spirit works. The, the Spirit's work is to always point to the King. And we see John the Baptist personifies that with his life. From the conception in, his, in the womb to the end of his life. He jumps for joy in the womb of his mother. And then he ends his life with a sword to his neck. All to declare Jesus is here. Jesus is great. It, John's mission statement from this point on is that Jesus must increase and he will decrease. It is declare whatever it costs me, I exist to declare Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. I exist to make Jesus great. And then we see in Mary's song just how we make Jesus great, how we make much of Jesus. Mary hears this greeting. She hears this confirmation that the word is true. And notice what she does. She begins to sing. She begins to, to just shout out with joy, almost uncontrollably. There's, Luke is at pains to talk about how, how all of this is of grace. All of this is unexpected. All of this is undeserved. And there's so much joy that's going on. They, they can't contain themselves. Mary is leaping for joy. John the Baptist in the womb is leaping for joy. Elizabeth is screaming out with joy. We're going we're gonna to find the shepherds are singing about joy in just a few weeks. There is all of this joy, joy, joy. And, and here Mary personifies this joy by singing. Notice verse 46. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, literally that word magnify, it means to make mega, make large, make massive. God is massive. God is great. God is large. But we declare that and we make a statement about that by the way that we live, by the things that we say, by the things that we do. And she says, my soul, my whole being exists to make the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, great to show His magnitude, to show His glory. And notice verse 47, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I find great contentment and joy in God as my Savior. How does she make the Lord great? How does she declare the greatness of the Lord? By trusting Him alone as Savior. By looking to the promise-keeping God of Israel as the only one who can save. And we would stop here and say, we notice with Mary that she is always aware of her need for a Savior. Mary's not a co-Savior. She's always looking to the Savior. And she magnifies the name of God by saying, only He can save me. Notice verse 48. For he has looked on the humble, literally the lowly, insignificant status of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I have tasted and experienced this undeserved favor of God. I was a nobody in Nazareth, just a little peasant girl going about my business. 
And now God has shown me favor in bringing the presence of the kingdom through my womb. And from now on, this peasant girl from Nazareth will be known, uh, will be declared as this blessed one, one who received undeserved favor. The Savior comes through her, this nobody. Verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. He is great he is large. He is strong. He is massive. So only He could do what He has done for me. Only He could do the great thing of saving me. And holy is His name. Literally, His name is set apart above all other names. There's no other name like His because only He can do the great things He's done. Verse 50. And here's what sums up His Great things, His greatness, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Oh, that's great. He's done this massive, glorious, great thing in showing us mercy. Undeserved favor, kindness, grace, things we don't deserve things we could not do for ourselves, rescuing us, helping us, coming as Savior, King, and all those who would bow before Him in fear and trust Him from generation to generation experience this saving greatness of God. Verse 51, For He has shown strength with His arm, arm in scripture it is the symbol of power the the power of god is described at times in his arm that comes down that reaches down and brings us up but notice what his arm does here he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts he he comes to to show mercy to his people and as he shows mercy to his people with his arm he judges his enemies and notice how his enemies are described here the proud, those who exalt themselves. Mary says she is in this humble status. She, she's small, she's lowly, but there are those who see themselves as great. And God, when He comes to show us mercy, He scatters the proud. The language here is even of the Tower of Babel. When God judges the earth, He judges the kingdoms of men who were building this great tower that would be raised up against His power and He scatters them. He, he, will, he will render them powerless in the thoughts of their heart. We, we've talked about this phrase several times. What, what does your heart tell you is true and right? What, are the, what do you want Allowing that to tell you what is right and true. And in the thoughts of your heart, what do you tell yourself about yourself? You want to tell yourself that you're great. You want to tell yourself that you can be Savior. And what God does to those who say they are great in their heart is He judges them and He scatters them. Verse 52, He has brought them down from their mighty thrones. And, and notice the trading places exalted those of a humble status. He literally says those who would be raised up against him, they will be, they will be razored down to nothing. And, and we see in this section of Mary's song that the greatness of God wars against those who would make themselves great. 
And notice he displays his strength in saving those who are of humble status, who, who understand that they're not great. And he displays his strength by judging those who would seek to save themselves and make themselves great. You, you do realize that those closest to God are those who realize apart from him they have nothing. They can do nothing for themselves. And those who are furthest from God, Mary would declare to us, are those who raise themselves up in greatness before God because their hearts tell them they're great. And some of us here today, we have that same problem. What are the ways today that you are telling yourself that you're great? Here's how you know. What are the ways today that you're telling yourself you can save yourself? That you can deliver yourself? Many of us here today, we think we can save ourselves according to our checking account. And that name at the top of that balance sheet, it is the name that we look to to save ourselves. Those dollar figures, we need more of those. Look at all that I can provide for myself. I need more of this. And look, look how I take care of myself. Actually, I'm the one that makes the money. I'm the one that goes to the grocery store and buys the food. I'm the one that puts it on the table. Look how I am providing for myself. Look how I can save myself. And we live in the, those thoughts of our hearts that we're doing the real stuff. I mean, what does Jesus really do for me? I'm the one going to work. I'm the one providing for myself. And before we know it, we are looking to ourselves as Savior. Some of us think that we can save ourselves by our own strength. And that's why you're so frustrated. And that's why you're racked with fear. And that's why you are racked with anxiety. Because you think you are strong enough to save yourself. You, you tell yourself, if I could just get angry enough and just say the right words, I'm strong enough with my words and my emotions to, to get what I want, to make people do what I want, to change their opinion. If I, if, if I could just dig down even in, in the, the pits of who I am and find some strength. That's why some of you spend so much time Googling Spend so much time on WebMD because you think the more you worry about that, it's going to change something. And if I can just worry some more, if I can just be more anxious, and what are you doing there? You are thinking there's got to be something. I can't fix this with my hands. I, I can't change this circumstance. This circumstance is beyond my control, and so I have nothing physically that I can do to change it. I, I can't change it with my wisdom, but there's got to be something deep down within me that would change this. And you're trying to convince yourself that you're Savior. And as you do, you're moving further and further away from God. God resists the proud. You're moving further away from God toward yourself. Some of you are doing that by just being here today. You, you, you realize you're not enough. You, you, you have this conviction in your heart that, that you're not good enough, that you're not righteous, that, that you are of this humble estate with nothing. And, and instead of looking to Christ, you continue to look to stuff you do. If I could just come to church today, it's supposed to be an ice storm. If I come today, 
I'm really going to get some credit before God. And you're always looking to, to something that, that you can hold up to God in an attempt to save yourself. And you're convinced, if I just try hard enough, if I do, do a little bit more, and that's why you're so drained all the time. Because you're not enough. You're not a good Savior. You're not strong enough to save yourself. No, God saves those who realize they can't save themselves. And He resists those who try to save themselves. And the heart that, that makes much of you a Savior will never be saved. Notice what God does. Verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things. The, the, those who are deficient, depleted. Now, hungry in our cultural context means, where are we going for lunch? I need to eat something. When, when Mary's talking about hungry, she's talking about someone starving to death. Someone, if they don't eat soon, they're going to die. And they're desperate. And they're begging for food. What does God do? He fills those with good things, whole things, completed things, things that satisfy. And we know in the Gospels that Jesus uses these terms to talk about those who are hungry, starving for righteousness' sake. They realize I have no righteousness in and of myself. I can't be good in and of myself. I need a Savior. I need someone to help me. I need the righteousness of another. And here, for the one who would realize they are starving of righteousness, God gives them riches. Notice, He, he, he gives them good things, and the rich He sends away empty. Those who would boast in their own righteousness, they get nothing. And we see here, if we want to make much of God, we see Him as the one who provides righteousness for us, provides goodness for us. Now, this is why we can't be scared of weakness in our own life. A lot of us here today, that, that's just not the way we were raised. We were raised to be strong and take care of the situation. We live in a culture where, where that is supposed to be how you are to live. And, and to, to stand and say, I'm weak, is so counterintuitive. But you know what is driving Mary's song? Her weakness, her, her starving, her being hungry, her being poor, her having nothing. It is what causes her to worship God. And we might say it this way today. If you want to be full in Jesus, you've got to declare, I am hungry of power and righteousness in and of myself. If you want to be rich in Jesus, you've got to realize that you are poor in power and righteousness in and of yourself. Hungry and poor folks desperately beg for help. That's why you can't be scared of those weak moments in your life. The, the stress that we're talking about, where you reach that situation and you just say, I can't fix it. I've tried everything to fix it. I've laid awake at night worried about this situation. This person, they just don't get it. They just don't understand. I can't fix them. Don't be scared of those moments. Don't run for those moments. Because that's the work of God in your life declaring to you, you are weak. And that's good news. 
when you would say, I am weak. Because when you're weak, you get the fullness of God. You get the riches of His grace. You get filled with the goodness of His grace. In those moments where you say, I can't handle it, I need someone else. It's why when you read your Bible and you are convicted of sin, some of you after sermons on Sunday, just you, you make me feel awful. Because you go, whoa, that was terrible. Okay, I'm trying. I'll, I'll go back and work next week, next play, get better. But what you mean by that is it was so convicting. It, it, you just stepped all over my toes and you just, you made me feel so bad about myself. Do you know that's heartbreaking to me? Because my goal is to point you to Jesus. And you got to move from that point where you go, wow, this is convicting. I need to trust Jesus more. I need to do better. Well, well, you know you don't need to do better. You need to look to Jesus more. And that's the point. Don't run from that moment. Some of you are here today and you are convicted in your gut that you need to follow Jesus and you don't know what to do with it. And so week after week after week, you get in that car as fast as you can, and you get to the restaurant as fast as you can. You get home. You start scrolling Facebook. You get somewhere else because the Word of God in the Gospel is haunting you. It is tracking you down, and you are trying to push it away. I'm here to say don't run from your sin in that way. Don't run from the conviction of sin because you need a Savior and Jesus is after you. And week after week after week, He is revealing to you your weakness. He is revealing to you your sin. Not so you could stand before Him and say, I'm great. No, so you would stand before Him and say, yeah, I'm great at sinning. And you're a great Savior. That's the point of the Gospel. I'm great at sinning. I am a very sufficient sinner. Jesus is great at saving. And He is sufficient to save those who realize they are great sinners. Notice the text continues. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Again, this whole section is just laden with this rescue language. Delivery language. That's where we find joy. That's where we find uh, delight is in the, the fact that He is rescuing us in mercy, in kindness, in goodness. He is being benevolent to us and He is reaching down and He is rescuing, notice, His servant Israel. The whole Old Testament full of promises to Israel that God's going to rescue them. That He's going to judge their enemies and they're going to live with Him forever. That He's going to set up shop in their community, in their kingdom forever. And when he does so, he's going to judge their enemies. He's going to rescue them from everybody. And here Mary would stand up and sing, God, you remembered all of those promises. All the way back to Genesis 3, when you said you would crush the serpent's head. All the way back to Abraham, when you said his descendants will be like the stars in the sky, the sand of the sea. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way back to David when you said his kingdom would, would rule forever. All the way back, you are fulfilling those promises in my womb. You, you are doing this amazing thing and notice you have remembered. You haven't forgotten. You remembered the promise to be kind. You remembered the promise to help and be merciful to your offspring forever. These forever promises that were given to Israel 
are coming true in the womb of Mary. God's mercy is always true. And here it's taking on flesh and blood in a child. And his mother is singing that this peasant girl, insignificant village out in the middle of nowhere, God is rescuing his people. And notice how it's described here. It, it, it's past tense. You helped Israel. You rescued Israel. It's as good as done when God says it's so. When God says he'll do something, it's in past tense. And in the coming of Jesus, it's past tense. He has done what he said he would do. You realize the foundation of the gospel is God doesn't lie. God is always true because he doesn't lie and he's always true and he always does what he says he would do. That's our hope in the gospel. He's worthy of trust. He's trustworthy. God proves he's trustworthy by calling you to trust him. And then he gives you reason to trust him. He makes himself trustworthy by never lying to you. We live in a world where we're lied to a lot. We look at people and they just want to tell us to our face what we want to hear. I, they, they will tell us whatever we want to hear to our face, whether it's true or not. We live in a world where many of us, our lives are scarred by broken contracts and broken promises. We look back on the people who were supposed to take care of us and they lied to us. The rock-solid foundation of the gospel is God has never done that to you and He never will. He's worthy of trust. And how do you know it? Jesus. The infleshing of Jesus declares God is worthy of trust. The cross on which Jesus dies declares God is worthy of trust. The resurrection says he is back from the dead. He does everything he says. He has defeated all of his enemies. He has defeated sin and death. Israel, from the beginning of time to the end of time, can trust him. You get in on those promises that, that he can be trusted. Isn't that amazing how the gospel works? God says, I'm going to prove my glory by telling everybody I'm trustworthy. You know what I'm going to do throughout history? I'm going to make a really big deal about me being faithful. That's what I'm going to do. God says the way I'm going to prove my glory is making sure throughout eternity there is this constant echo and reverberation. God is gracious. God is kind. God is worthy. God, 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 is, God is good. And guess what? You get to get in on that by Him being good to you. That's the way He proves His glory. I want everybody to know how faithful I am. So I, so I don't lie. I always tell the truth. So I'm going to make you promises, amazing promises. Even though you've sinned and even though you've rebelled against me, I'm going to make you this, this amazing promise that you still will get to live with me forever. That... I, I want you to sing of my faithfulness forever. How do you know it's true? I'm going to send my son to die for your sins. And if you can't trust me after that, then I'm not trustworthy. If you can't trust me after bringing him back from the dead and seating him at the right hand of God, then you just don't believe I'm worthy of trust. 
Why would you not trust him today? He's the only one who can save you from your sins. Why would you not trust him today? He's not a liar. Why would you not trust him today? He's worthy of your trust. On the cross, he proved he's worthy of your trust. Jesus is the only one who can take care of your sins. You can't. And God lifted him up as a great savior on the cross so you would trust him. Why would you not trust him today? Do you think he's a liar? He's not. He can't be a liar. He crucified his own son for you. He loves you. Why would you not believe that's true? He sent his son to die for you. How do you know heaven's true? Because Jesus is alive and well right now, seated at the right hand of God, because God lifted him up out of the grave. And he's at the right hand of God, and he says, my kingdom can be yours. How do you know that's worthy of trust? The womb of Mary. There's a baby growing, developing into a child who will become a man who will live a perfect life that you can never live, who will hang on a cross to die for sin you could never pay for, and he's back from the dead, ruling and reigning. That's how we know it's true. You know how you make Christmas great? You make Jesus great. And one of the ways we make Christmas great is we make much of Jesus' weakness. If you're scared of weakness... You need to get a little bit closer to Jesus. You got to get a little bit closer to Jesus this Christmas. You got to stand back and say, I'm scared of being a nobody. Well, Jesus became a peasant, immigrant, outcast king who nobody knew, who was humiliated and mocked on a cross for me. Jesus became a nobody so you could be somebody in the kingdom. You're scared of your weakness today? Just this Christmas, with everything going on, sit back and reflect on the fact that the one with all power, all authority, all glory, chose to enter the womb of a woman. He was dependent upon nourishment from her body to make him grow in her womb. Isn't that amazing? That the one with all power would become so small for you. Jesus cried to be fed. There were times in his life where he couldn't feed himself. And he had to scream out, feed me, in a baby's cry. I'm going to try to cry like a baby. Jesus had to have his diapers changed. The one with all power and all authority became so small and powerless for you. He became so weak for you. There were probably times when he was playing in the front yard and he went to run out into the street and there were some donkeys and mules coming down the road and Joseph had to grab him and pull him back. Not because he was any less God, but because he chose those moments to be a real man, to be a real human Jesus became weak for you. You scared of weakness? He was hung on two pieces of wood, mocked as a fake king, dressed up in a purple robe with crowns of thorns on his head. He was spit upon. There was a sword thrust to his side. You're scared of being weak? 
Jesus became weak for you. He became small. He became weak for you. He became sin for you. On the cross, when he is screaming out till he can't scream anymore because there is no more air that will come through his vocal cords because he has been scorched, scorched under suffering and torment that represent the fact that he's forsaken by God. The fellowship with the Father somehow in this mystery, wrath is unleashed upon Jesus for you. The wrath you deserve. You're scared to become weak. He became sin for you on the cross so that you who are a sinner might know the righteousness of God in Him. He became weak. He became poor so that in Him you might become strong and know His strength. So that in Him you might know the riches of His grace forever and ever and ever. And forever His faithfulness will be our song. And I wonder as we sing forever if God will in heaven will make sure that some of us still have weak pathetic tone deaf vocals so that we look around in heaven and go they're a little off key they sound a little whiny and in those moments, we don't think less of the gospel. We're reminded of our weakness. And we're reminded of the song of the gospel that comes through our weakness. Let's pray.